Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight, and our topic is the Nexus Part 3, Internal Work. We've been looking at the connection between the divine and the human as we're approaching Palm Sunday and Easter here, thinking about what uh, the Lord did when He was in this world. And tonight we're talking about internal work and wanting to get at what the Lord was doing. Why was it so important? What I'll be saying tonight in a nutshell, what we'll be exploring is that uh, even though while the Lord was here, He did a great abundance of teaching, healing, preaching, uh, the primary thing I would say that He was doing here was something that was not visible to anyone else. It was this internal work that He was doing. And so I want to explore that a little bit, look at some scriptures and look at what he was doing and why he needed to be here in this world to do that. What, what, why, did, why, why come into this world and then do internal work? So if you want to join us on that journey, let's open with a prayer. Shall we, good friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you, Lord, for this circle of friends here, both in the room and online. Thank you for bringing us together in your name. We open the pages of your words, seeking for you, Lord, seeking to know your heart and your mind. Amen. Amen. Delight to be with you, friends, those of you who are here, those of you who are watching online, getting the audio and on the phone. Uh, always makes me happy to, to do this. And we're talking about this internal work that the Lord did. I want to start tonight by reading a passage from the epistles to get into this a little bit. And it's in the Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. So how you get there if you don't know your way around too terribly well is that you start from the four Gospels in the New Testament. You head right and you go through the Romans and Corinthians, Galatians, and you get to Ephesians. And I'm in chapter 6 at the, toward the end there, the last chapter of that book. And Paul says a very interesting thing to these Ephesians. Uh, let's start at verse 10 there. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Ah, so this is talking about spiritual protection against evil, right? Against the wiles of the devil. So put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand this kind of attack from hell that's going to come. And then it says this wonderful phrase. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Yes. What I take that to mean is that our battle in this world, I talked last time about who Jesus' enemy was and said there was no human being in this world that it was his enemy. Who he was wrestling against, what he was wrestling against was of a spiritual nature. And Paul's phrase here that we, in the old King James, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling other human beings who have flesh and blood as we have. We're wrestling against what Paul calls these principalities and powers which is a phrase that he often uses for spiritual forces 
in the afterlife, in, in the other world, principalities and powers. It may mention this world, but it's the rulers of the darkness in this world. Isn't it something like that that it says there? Mm-hmm. It's the rulers of the darkness in the world against spiritual wickedness in these higher heavenly places. Uh, so it's spiritual. And so Paul is saying that's, he's talking to the people of Ephesus, the, the new Christians there, and saying, we're not wrestling against other people. Our problem is not, you know, the Romans. Our problem is not the Jewish people or something. You know, our problem is spiritual. That's, that's what we're wrestling against. And I would submit that Jesus' struggle was the same. You know, his, his, um, his battles. I don't want to use the word struggle because one of the things I want to talk about tonight is that I think in some ways this, it was very painful for him. I don't think it was actually difficult, like, like uh, oh, he could hardly do it or something. You know, there are various indications that, that he did not have a problem. In fact, he welcomed the, the, the spiritual battle. That's what he was here for. But that battle was taking place on a spiritual level. But so wouldn't you say, well, if you're having a spiritual battle... Wasn't your situation in the spiritual world much better for, you know, why come, you know, it's like going down in the basement to deal with the aerial on top of the roof. You know, why would you, you know, it doesn't make sense. Why, why would you do that? Why was it so important to come down into this world? Uh, the answer to that that Swedenborg <coughs> gives is that... Uh, Human beings were created very close to God, very sort of childlike and beautiful and just receptive to the Lord. And, and, um, but over time, we sort of wanted our own room and we moved farther and farther away <laughs> from the Lord and farther and farther and farther and farther away. So, uh, and Swedenborg says that uh, all the people in the hells are involved in things that are external things of the senses things of the body even though they don't have physical bodies anymore they have spiritual bodies but it's down on that outermost level of what it is to be human that that all of that wants to operate and not have anything to do with the spiritual stuff higher up and so the only way the lord could even reach that he was too far away from it in a sense he fills everything in one sense but in another sense in terms of directly being able to interact with it he was too far away. Uh, people had pulled away, pulled away, pulled away. And so that's, if you saw my Bible study from a couple of weeks ago, that's what I meant by this island that's, that's separate. You know, there's this distance because people had pulled away. And so the Lord wanted to come into the flesh to, to deal with this. Um, and I think that actually, okay, let's, Let's read Luke chapter 4. Let's go to the new... Actually, I want to start with Mark. So this is the gospel, so go to left from where you are. It's the second gospel. And I want to go to Mark chapter 1. Mark describes... uh, There's something that Scripture refers to, I'm sure you're familiar with this, good friends, as temptations. And as you may have heard me say before, uh, temptations don't primarily mean just, wow, I'd really love to eat that, or wow, I'd really love to do that. Um, temptations are actually the term the scripture uses for this spiritual attack. 
we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual attack from evil spirits attacking us, and that's what causes this state that's called temptation. It comes from a Latin root meaning to be tested. Uh, the idea that it was tempting only sort of evolved later in English, but, but the root idea of it was being tested and hell attacking and being tested. And there is a description in Scripture of Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, isn't there? Uh, let's look at Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. I just want to highlight one little detail here. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. He's tempted, right. And was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Hmm. The wild beasts. That's interesting when, when Scripture talks about animals, which it does a lot. He was with the wild beasts. Swedenborg says that the wild beasts always talk about emotions. You know, they're, they're symbolic of human emotions. And so the emotions that Jesus was with were these wild animal emotions. He, he's with these wild beasts. He's out there in the wilderness and he's being tempted by Satan. And the angels ministered to him. This is a little mini picture of what Swedenborg says goes on in Temptations, which is that hell assaults, heaven never attacks, it's never preemptive or whatever, but hell attacks and then angels defend us. And so you see this picture of hell uh, in the sense that he's tempted by Satan and then and he's with these wild beasts, you know, so there's, there's all this uh, negative emotion going on, but the angels are ministering to him, trying to protect him, trying to, can't take away the experience, but trying to support him so that he gets through it well. The same story is told at much more uh, length in Luke, so if we turn to the right, go to Luke chapter 4, it's also in Matthew. Uh, let's read this longer version. There, that's, and you notice how early in Mark that was? That was just like 12 verses in, right? It was in chapter 1. Boom! You know, it happens right away. And the same thing in Luke. You have more of the Christmas story and so on. But very early on in this whole description here in Luke chapter 4, we read about him being taken into the wilderness. Starting at verse 1? Yes, let's go for that. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness being tempted for 40 days by the devil. In the last one it said Satan here, it says the devil, okay? And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now it seems from the way that this story is related that there were 40 days where he was tested or tempted by the devil and then at the end of that time, isn't that what we gather from the way that the story is told? He's, he's hungry. It's ended. The 40 days are over. And now he has this particular interaction with the devil, these this kind of question and answer that goes on. One of the things I want to point to here, see, I think it speaks to, it's, uh, it's just one story, but it speaks to some of that spiritual wrestling, not against flesh and blood. You know, what is Jesus doing out there? He, he's in this uh, kind of confrontation with the devil. 
And uh, let's read what it says there. Uh, but Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. Yes. Then, and so the, the devil says, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to be made bread. And he, Jesus, answers with Scripture. And it, we don't, the, script, the Scripture doesn't really say one way or the other, but it's not like Jesus says, can I get back to you in a few days? I mean, that is tempting, you know. Uh, he just answers him right away, doesn't he? He just, no. That, that's a no. And so this is a, this is a temptation about the stone being made bread. And he leads in with this, if you're the son of God, you know, it's an interesting little angle, isn't it? Hey, why don't you just, you know, do this? And Jesus says, no. And then what is the second one here? Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Mm, it's interesting. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. <laughs> so if Jesus could just be in the hierarchy under the devil, he would have all, you know, it's a pretty sweet situation because the devil said, hey, I own all this. If you want in, I can let you in. <laughs> Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Mm. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Yes, he quotes from Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 10. Okay. Then the devil brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, I think the devil's caught on that Jesus is responding with Scripture every time. So the devil's decided he's going to use Scripture for his part, too. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. Quote Psalm 91 to him. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Hmm. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. So it's interesting to me that everything that he quotes back comes from a span of five chapters in Deuteronomy. And so the devil throws scripture at him. Jesus throws scripture back. And uh, then what do we read? Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Yes. <laughs> it's not exactly a settling ending to the video. No. It says, okay, I'll be back. <laughs> you did well this time around, but, I, but I'll be back. And then look at what it says in the very next verse. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. Yeah, now where did he get that power of the Spirit? Didn't it seem like from that, whatever that was all about, those 40 days, the exchange with the evil spirits, that he grew in power as a result of, you know, he, he was not... He didn't succumb. He didn't succumb to the worldly power thing. Hey, you're the son of God, do a miracle kind of thing. And he didn't succumb to the, oh, why don't you test 
fate and throw yourself off the top of the temple and see if the scripture is true that, that he'll you know, catch you before you dash your foot on a stone. Uh, he, he was successful in all that. And we do see uh, the Lord sweating blood in the garden of, or great drops as if of blood uh, in the garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion. But here we don't see much. He, you know, he's got a quick end. He quotes a scripture. Uh, I don't get the sense that it was, uh, what was challenging about it was that he hasn't eaten for 40 days He's with these wild, you know, everything's all roiled up. But he was still able, I don't think from his higher self that it was difficult to deal with this. He, he knew where it needed to be. And after he does that, he's increased in the power of the Spirit, it says. And he goes out and does these miracles and so on. Um, part, part of what's going on is that God, as he is in himself, could never have had that exchange that we just read there. Not, not going to happen. You know, God, as he is in himself, is not going to be able to have this face-to-face conversation with what is called here the devil. Swedenborg explains that the devil just means hell. There's no one great devil who's equal to God or whatever. It's just the aggregate of evil spirits or hell. Uh, but that hell is attacking him and trying to persuade him through worldly power, through other means. Uh, but he is not, he, he's got his priorities in the right place and does not succumb to that and gets more spiritually powerful as a result. He was, the weird thing, is, I've always thought about this story in the wrong way. I've always thought about it that here he is just starting his ministry and then, oh, unfortunately, he had this horrible experience. You know, it does figure that the evil spirits want to get you when something's new. Have you ever noticed that? Like you enter a new state or a new situation, you know, that's when, you know, there's, there's some sort of test or temptation or something like that. But it seems, oh, it's so unfortunate that that he went out into the wilderness and, he, and he's hungry and then just when he's weak and and all this roiling emotion in his lower self that's when the devil comes in and is trying to get him to do this or that but i didn't have my head straight about all that the whole reason he came into this world was to have that conversation he wanted to get close enough to talk directly we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these principalities and powers in these dark places. The only way you can get there is through the flesh. And even the flesh, when the flesh is hungry, when the flesh is tired and, you know, and all that, he's out in the wilderness in a state of deprivation. That's when this can be activated. It's the thing that I assume that people, certainly speaking for myself, I don't, you know, I don't like going through anything remotely like that. I want it to end. I don't want to have anything to do with it. The Lord came here. That was a big part of what he came here to do. It's like, oh, good. You're the biggest devil I've met yet. Good. I, you know, I came here to have this interchange, you know, because he wanted to come into this world. Through the flesh, he was able to have access to these lower parts of this world of spirits that you can't get to if you're God Almighty on the, on the top of everything. Um, 
don't know if I can, I can make that clear, but because these evil spirits are in, in outermost things, when Jesus is in outermost things, they've got access to him and they're able to have this exchange. And what happens as a result of the exchange is that Jesus is able to organize them, put them in their place. He gains power over them. Uh, okay, you're this type, you're that type. He's able to do things from his point of access in this world that you couldn't have done from, you know, God on top of the pious mountain kind of thing. He welcomed it. And so he came here to have a series of horrible emotional experiences. It's just amazing. But that's what he did. He came here to go through a lot of emotional torment and able to use that torment. Now, how did he, this is what baffles me, is I, I know he was amazing and everything, but he, he, he started out just a human being like we are. He had a divine soul inside himself, but that couldn't communicate directly with his outer self. How did he know, just from reading the same Bible we're reading, somehow he figured out, oh, oh, it's not about people, but I can use my own emotions and my own thoughts to tinker with stuff in the spiritual world. Like, how did he figure that out? It's amazing. And that's what he was doing here. You know, using that access. So this was internal work. It was work in his spirit. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. You know, he's, he's working against, he's using love to counter evil. He's using truth to counter falsity. And uh, you see him do it with the evil spirits there. Even though they're quoting scripture, they don't have it right. <laughs> you know, And they're using it for the wrong purpose. And, and he quotes it correctly. Uh, let's look at some other... Oh, this was a fascinating... Let's just go real quick to... Um, so go to the Gospel of John, go through Acts and Romans to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just wanted to read a little detail here. It's just a curious thing. I don't know what this means. But didn't we start out tonight with reading Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. He's talking to the Ephesians, and he's telling them, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Well, look at what he says, what Paul says to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, I want to go to, let's say, um, uh, pick in, jump into verse 28. 20 what? 28. Now, when all things are made subject to him... That's to Jesus... Then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. All in all. That's the way of stating the goal. In other words, we're talking about access and being at every level so that God, that divine that was within Jesus, will be able to be in everything and to be everything in everything. Go on. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, hmm. why then are they, are they baptized for and the he, dead? And here's a great question. And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? Yeah. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? You know, and I think, again, talking about um, wrestling with spiritual things, you know, why are we in jeopardy every hour? And then what does he say here? 
I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. I die daily. We're in jeopardy every hour. I die daily. What is Paul talking about? And then what does he say right after that? If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at, at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Yeah. Now, it's a tricky sort of argument that he's making, but I think what he's saying is, I'm just fascinated that Paul, too, he doesn't just say he was with the beasts. He says he actually fought them. I fought. And where did he fight them? At Ephesus, the very place where the Ephesians are, who he wrote to about wrestling not with flesh and blood and all that. It's just interesting to me. And I think what this is hinting at is that Paul, too, and we see this in various epistles that he wrote, he was struggling with these same kinds of things, not in the way Jesus did, not with an infinite soul, but just as a regular human mortal. He was wrestling with these beasts. You know, I think that's what it's talking about, the same sort of beasts. And what would be the point of all that if there's no life after death? Then we might as well just eat and drink, get on with it. You know, just like, why would you wrestle? You know, and the implication is that that wrestling it comes from not drinking and not eating, like it's self-restraint or something. You know, if, if there's no life after death, why don't we just uh, go crazy? You know, just do whatever we want. And then what does he say in the next couple of verses? Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Hmm. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Do not sin. Awake to righteousness and do not <clears throat> sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Yes. So I think he's talking in a somewhat cryptic way here, but I think he's talking about not sinning. You know, the thing that he's wrestling with is about positioning himself well for the afterlife because if there's no afterlife, why don't we just go crazy and, and live whatever way we want to? Uh, awake to righteousness and do not sin. I like that, that phrase. That's good. So just a little point that Paul, too, was wrestling with wild beasts. And I think this is an imagery about temptation, about these difficult emotions in the outer self and so on. Okay, the next thing I want to talk about Continuing the theme, let's go back to Luke chapter 4 to your left. And uh, continuing the theme of Jesus' interaction with evil spirits through the flesh. It's just an interesting thing. Look at 4 and let's start at verse 33. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, mm. Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mm. Now hang on, I have one little problem with that. Uh, dear reader, yes. how many people were involved in verse 33? What are we talking about? A man. A man. And that would be singular, if yeah. I have my grammar correct. Yes. And then what are the pronouns in verse 34? 
they are plural. Are they plural? Yes. We. Leave us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? You come to destroy us. So somehow inside this poor human being, it says in verse 33 that he just has a spirit of an unclean demon, but then when they start speaking, they're plural. Right? What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, this is early on. I mean, Jesus' ministry just barely started, you know, right? It's very early on. It's just getting going. And here he comes. He's in the synagogue. And there's this person who has this unclean demon. And he cries out with a loud voice. What have you to do with us? Leave us alone. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, you holy son, holy one of God. And what did Jesus say? But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And now, did... wait a minute. Jesus used the wrong pronouns. What, him? I thought it was the guy talking. Right? The guy cried out with a loud voice, saying, Leave us alone. And who does Jesus talk to? Does he talk to the man? The man's in the third person. Him. Jesus talks directly to the evil spirits who have just addressed him. He says, you be quiet and come out of him. What is he doing? He's separating this guy from these evil spirits, right? Mm. Separating the two of them. The guy obviously feels so attached to these evil spirits that he speaks on their behalf. You know, they're sort of speaking through his mouth. He said, what have we to do? You know, he's, he's just voicing their point of view. He's just an instrument, a puppet for them. But that's not how Jesus sees it. He sees a distinction between that person and those evil spirits. He talks to the evil spirits directly from his position in the flesh and says, leave, and the devil's thrown out, and tell me a little more about that. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, I don't get the impression here, we don't have anything specific, but I don't get the impression that Jesus was just like pouring sweat and thinking, Oh, I don't know if I can do it. This is a pretty nasty situation. I've never handled something like this before. No. Not a problem. He knows instantly what's going on. He knows, oh, you're a human being, but you have evil spirits. I'll talk to your evil spirits. I'll separate the evil spirits from you. That's part of the work that I'm here to do. And, uh, and with authority and power, not messing around, tells them, go out, and knows exactly how to drive them out. And everybody's amazed. You know, the, it sounds like he kind of, the person sort of convulsed, but it says the, the demon threw him in the midst or something, but mm -hmm. didn't hurt him. Came out of him, didn't hurt him. Just, they, they just left. And everybody was amazed. You know, what, what is this? What is this? With authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And so the, the Lord's reputation spread all over the place. Let's read one more like this. These are so fun. Let's go to the left to Matthew chapter 8. See, who's he wrestling with? Is he wrestling with the guy, with the flesh and blood guy? He's got no problem with the guy, right? 
he's wrestling with the evil spirits, and I don't think it's a much of a wrestle. It's not hard for him. Totally dominant. Just out, you know? It's not, not hard. Doesn't sweat over it. Uh, let's look at 8. How about uh, start at verse 28? Another well-known story in here. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, Good. There met him two <laughs> demon-possessed men, coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. I just was thinking today about this exceedingly fierce. You know, this again. What were they? They were demon-possessed, right? And they're exceedingly fierce. They're terrifying. You know, everybody who comes by, they're just so fierce and wild, and, and nobody can deal with these guys, you know? There's two of them out there. And uh, now, what do they do? And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Yeah. Now, same deal. Like they got the same playlist or something, you know. What have you to do with us? Wait, it's not time yet? Do we have to leave already? You know? Kind of a powerless little statement, isn't it? They've been obsessing this person, having a good time, these two guys, and, and now Jesus comes along. And he doesn't even say anything as far as we can tell, right? They, he, he just walks up and they go, you know, and they acknowledge him immediately as the son of God. You're the son of God. What's, what are you doing? You know, and they, they, you know, we have nothing to do with each other. What are you doing? You come here to torment us. Mm. So what happened? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. Isn't this interesting? So a little, bar like, first of all, you bargain. Well, can I stay up? And that's like, no, you have to go to bed. Well, can I, can I leave the light on? Or <laughs> like, you just have a second bargain. Right? So they, first of all, they don't want to leave. But then it's like, well, if I have to leave, okay, send me into the, the pigs. How about that? And he said to them, go. Now, is this a person who's sweating with this thing? He's like, ooh, it's really hard. Ooh, I don't know how to, ooh, don't know how to deal with these bad guys. Ooh, you know, so fierce. There's two of them, only one of me. No problem. He's got this licked, you know, go. He doesn't even say, he, he says one word in the whole exchange. Am I wrong? <laughs> the only thing he says, they, oh, uh, uh, they're freaking out. And he just says, go, off they go. That's it. Okay. And what happened? So when they had come down, sorry, so when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Mm. Yes, this is, a, this is a story that also has a symbolism as well as being, you know, physically real and true and so on. And um, the part that's interesting me tonight is that here are two people who were so sort of welded to these evil spirits and the evil spirits to them that they speak on their behalf, they act on their behalf, they're fierce and horrible and attacking people and everything. As soon as they see Jesus coming, they start freaking out and they're worried about it because they realize they're in the presence of greater power than themselves and they're bargaining and saying well come okay if we if, well don't kick well okay if we have to go okay could we go over here 
and he just says, go, and they go, and they're out. And the Lord has again separated those two people from all that mess that was inside their hearts and minds. He's not wrestling against the flesh and blood. He's helping this flesh and blood. He's wrestling against, and I don't think it's hard, <laughs> but he's, he's, it's the, the powers of wickedness in dark places. That's what he's dealing with. I love those stories. They're so great. Um, uh, I want to read John 14. Let's turn to the right and go to the Gospel of John. I want to read John 14.30. Now, it doesn't... I was reading a different translation this week, and it has an interesting phrase in it. Let's see what it is in the New King James here. 14.30. Jesus is talking to the disciples. It's at the very end of his life. And what does he say here? I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. An interesting phrase, and it's the same kind of thing in the Old King James. In the NRSV, it says, he has no power over me. And I think that is the gist of what it says. He has nothing in me. It's just what those evil spirits were saying. What have I to do with you? You know, there's, there's a complete difference here. And so he has no power over, you know, that's what I'm talking about. They just, they're, they're powerless relative to the Lord. He, he has all the cards. But he's not, um, he doesn't extinguish them. He doesn't vaporize them. He just says, leave him, go, you know, yes, you can go over there, go into the pigs and so on. But uh, it, in a strange way, it is also for the protection he, he's doing this, he's doing a difficult maneuver in a very careful way. It's not harm, you know, it's not like the evil spirits are screaming like they've been burned with acid or something. They're, they don't like being separated from somebody, but the Lord just says, okay, you're, you're done, move over here. And you see how in this flesh, in the flesh, he's moving, he's moving these people around. Uh, Swedenborg says that um, although in Scripture there's only this kind of one story of, of this time with the devil or with Satan at the beginning there, uh, and then you have the crucifixion at the end, uh, Swedenborg says that Jesus was continually undergoing temptations from the time he was pretty young. I gathered from the time about 13 years old or something. He was going through these spiritual battles. So he'd been through years and years and years of this. This is internally what's depicted by Joseph being in prison for so many years before he came out and ruled Egypt. And, uh, and Swedenborg says there were particular reasons why he couldn't reveal at that time that this is what he was going through. So he did not let on to the disciples what he was going through. Just occasionally he'll say a little thing like he does in Luke uh, 9.23, which we can turn to if you want to real quick. Um, what does he say to them there? Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, there's just a tiny little hint there that Jesus was already carrying a cross daily. He doesn't talk about it, but he just says, if you want to follow me, this is the way. You, you know. And what does Paul say? Isn't that interesting? He says, I die daily. 
and that he's wrestling with these wild animals and so on, and, and uh, that the people who follow him go through this. They uh, take up your cross daily. There was no hint of a cross or a crucifixion coming up at this point in the story, uh, but he's talking to them about a cross and that if we're to follow the Lord, we have to take up our cross daily. So there are hints that this was going on inside, and yet uh, that was what the Lord came for. He came to have that engagement in order to be able to put hell in its place and to gain that strength forever to be able to protect people who didn't want to be in that hell. Swedenborg says that Scripture does actually talk about what the Lord went through, as you may know, good friends. It's just in a little portion, a little-known portion of the Scripture known as the Old Testament. Don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, it has these battles in it and this wandering and the conquering of this land. It's, that whole thing is about what Jesus was going on inside. So it's not in the New Testament. You don't see it in the New Testament but it's laid out in great detail in the Old Testament, uh, all those battles to, to conquer the land and so on. Uh, so there's little hints. And when Jesus says to his disciples, can you drink the cup that I drink and can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? You know, it's just these little hints of like, actually my process is intense. I don't share it with you, but the process I'm going through is intense. Um, uh, they're just little hints, but he doesn't, you don't see it all the time. You just see that scene at the beginning where he's interacting with the devil. Uh, okay, okay, let's go to the left to Jeremiah. So if you go to the middle of your Bible, there's the Psalms and Isaiah, and turn to the right, go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23. I just wanted to read. Um, verses 28 and 29 there. And I'll explain why in a second. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? See, there were a lot of false prophets around giving <clears throat> false messages and so on. And... It's an interesting statement. What is the chaff to the wheat? Now, you probably know. You know better than I do. I know nothing about wheat. But the idea is that there's, you know, the, the kernel of it, and then there's this chaff, sort of fibrous stuff on the outside, and they would, they would blow away that chaff, and then you'd have the, the wheat. So what is the chaff to the wheat? It's just like, well, it was something that sort of shielded you for a while, and then it, and then it blows away, and it's, it's more or less nothing. And he's saying that a prophet who has a dream or has God's word should speak that word faithfully. Don't worry about the chaff. If you're the wheat, don't worry about the chaff. And I love this next scripture, which we'll read just because I love it. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Mm, I just love that. <coughs> In the Lord's work, like a word, like a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. In other words, the wheat is so much stronger than the chaff. The chaff just, just blows away in the presence of the wheat. And one of these images is that the wheat has to do with the, 
with truth, it also has to do with nourishment, and the chaff is this falsity. There's some spiritual experience that Swedenborg describes where angels were challenging him on his own thoughts. And he says, well, no, I think of it this way, and I think of it that way, and I think of it the other way. And then at the end of the experience, he sees, in the spiritual world, he sees his old ideas blowing away like chaff to the north of heaven. Just Sweet. So look at this in the New Testament then. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Turn to the right. Jumping all over the place tonight. Thank you for your patience. Good, kind, and gentle friends. And uh, look at what John the Baptist says in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3 here. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And listen to this. <clears throat> his winnowing fan is in his hand. Oh, a winnowing fan was what you used to blow away the chaff. This big fan and blow. So the chaff is attached to the wheat, but if you fan it hard, the chaff blows away and you've just got the useful wheat left over. So his winnowing fan, so this is the Lord coming into this world. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. I woke up this morning, early this morning, thinking about that phrase. That phrase came to mind about the winnowing fan. You see why it would come to mind? He comes up to these people who are attached to these evil spirits, the chaff, you know, and he sees them as wheat. You're wheat. You're completely surrounded by chaff, but I see you as wheat. You are not chaff. And I got a big old fan here, and I'm going to blow that chaff away. And he drives the evil spirits away from them. And he's able to separate the wheat from the chaff and separate the human being from these evil forces that were around it. And the people themselves may have felt like, well, no, this is who I am. This is, you know, I'm fierce. I am out here and I terrorize people or something. But the Lord, no, that's not who you are. And he'll drive the evil spirits away from them and separate them. His winnowing hand, fan is in his hand. He'll gather the wheat into the barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Um, uh, look at John. Let's turn to John chapter 5. So turn to the right. Jumping around the Gospels a lot, which is so necessary to understand who the Lord is. John chapter 5. And he goes to this person. This is about the troubling of the waters and everything. And he says to the person, rise, take up your bed and walk. Mm -hmm. And the man was made whole and he walked. It was on the Sabbath. And then people got upset because it was the Sabbath. And then Jesus found the person in the temple in verse 14. And what did he say to him? Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Ah, he was able to temporarily separate people from their evil just by the sheer divine force that was in him. 
he could create that distance, give them a little time off. But it was very important that they sin no more or else they'd bring that chaff right back in there and it'd be worse than it was before. So it's an important thing that go and sin no more. You know, I'll create. So he came into this world and said, I'll create the distance. I can do that. I can come close enough that I don't even have to say anything. They just start screaming and hollering when, when I come close. Uh, I'll give you some time off, and you can think about it and get free. But you've got to sin no more, or a worse thing's going to happen to you. And you probably remember John chapter 8, about the woman caught in adultery. And he says, he that's without sin among you cast the first stone, and he's writing on the ground, and they all file out one by one. And when Jesus, let's pick up in verse 10 there of John chapter 8. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Okay, you are separate from it right now. You've gone through this public humiliation and everything. You did not get stoned to death. That's good. I don't condemn you, but don't do it anymore. You know, create a boundary between people. So this idea that somehow Jesus just took care of the sin, it doesn't matter what you do, is not the message we read in the New Testament. He's saying, don't, it's going to be worse if you go back to it again. I can, I can put a wedge in there. I can drive that away for you, but you're going to need to come to this on your own, get strengthened on your own so that you are moving away from that thing that had a hold of you before. I can, I've got a winnowing fan. I can blow that chaff away. And the reason he was able to do all that was because he was doing that in himself with his own lower self. His higher self was doing that to his lower self. He was doing this internal work, and he welcomed the work. This is what's so amazing to me, that, oh, great, here's a circumstance. Oh, I get to fight this. I get to put this in order, you know, and there, never do we read in any of the miracles or any of the circumstances that he, the only time you see him kind of struggling or anything is on the eve of the crucifixion. He's very distressed and troubled, but that's not about these, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's about that final temptation that he's going to go through, but none of the other stuff in the New Testament ever seems to give him much pause. He, he just deals with it. In fact, he seems happy to deal with it. For this reason, you have stories in the Old Testament. I'll just mention two. We won't go look at them. But in Judges chapter 7, there's the story of Gideon going to fight this huge army. He's got 22,000 soldiers, and the Lord says, it's too many. So he cuts it down to 10,000. He says, it's too many. Cuts it down to 300. That's more like it. We'll go with 300 against that other group. And they're absolutely dominant. This is a picture of the Lord going against these forces. Of, he, he, it doesn't need 22,000 soldiers to do it. He's got that divine power. And another story is David and Goliath. David really doesn't seem all that worried. But he says, hey, I killed a bear. I killed a lion. I can deal with this guy. You know, and David is a picture of the Lord. It, Goliath, so he's, so he's nine and a half feet tall. I don't care, you know. <laughs> He, he just doesn't seem that worried about it. He wants to get the equipment right and everything. The armor doesn't really fit, so he gets the sling and the stones. But, but uh, he's, I think it's a picture of how the Lord approached these battles. He wanted to engage with Goliath. You know, 
Nobody else wanted to deal with Goliath. But he wanted to get out there and deal with him. How, how dare this guy? You know, who is he? Who does he think he is? I'll take him out, you know. And that was the Lord's spirit of coming into this world. It's really, really amazing. Kingdom of God is within you, he says. That, that's where it is. It's internal work. So most of his work that he was doing from, from, I think, from the time he was 13 years old on, and there was lots of preparation before that, learning the word and everything, he was doing this spiritual work. You only see it here and there. Here he does a healing here, you know. But the main thing he was doing was using his access through the flesh that brought him close to these evil spirits. That's where he wanted to be. Why did he want to have dinner with Pharisees and talk to them? Well, because he saw that their hearts had evil and their minds had false things in them. And he, maybe I can talk them into letting go of that chaff. Worth a shot. You know, they'll, they'll probably oppose me, but I want to save them. And I can do it from close up. I can't do it from up, up in the universe somewhere. But coming right down here, I have access. And I can wrestle against those outermost parts of the spiritual world and how they impact this world. So, in conclusion, although Jesus did an abundance of teaching and healing in this world, I believe his main work here was internal, using access through the flesh and the lower mind to straighten out this mess in the world of spirits. Part of what he was doing was to become permanently able to do that. And what's the takeaway for us? The Lord did all that so that if we call on him, he can do that thing for us that he did for those Gergesenes and did, did for the other people. Or, you know, If we've got something in our lives, he has that power to push that away, to create a wedge between there and help to strengthen us and, and give us uh, that ability to get out of it. He has that ability to wrestle against those things that are not flesh and blood. And the best way to get at that was to be here in the flesh to get that outermost part of the spiritual world set back into order. I hope this has made sense to you, good friends. And I really just love what the Lord did. It's so amazing, the spirit that he did it in, uh, a spirit of love, a spirit of truth and, um, and clarity. How, how did he get that astonishing clarity? about who evil spirits are, what they're doing to people and everything. Because when he was dealing with people who were attached to people in this world, it was sort of a judgment for them too. He was sort of saying to those spirits, are you certain about this? Are you going to oppose me? Are you, where are we here? You know, he was always for people's benefit. Let's, let's sort this thing out. Whose side is fine with me. I don't love it. But my freedom is the most important thing. If you want to, if you want to be about hell, Go ahead, but you can't be obsessing this person right now. And I, I, I'm a greater power than you are. I can deal with this stuff. That's what he was doing in this world. So I love the Lord, don't you? <laughs> Isn't he great? Amen. All right, let's, let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you for bowing down the heavens and coming into this world. 
gaining that amazing power and bringing that to bear on these situations, freeing your children, Lord, driving that, those evil spirits back, organizing them, making life better for them, better for people in this world, and amassing that power, that power of the Spirit that you got from that interaction with the devil out in the wilderness, becoming that power infinitely and forever. We thank you, Lord. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so the Lord can do that trick for us. <laughs>